This show was first broadcast last weekend, April 4th, 2020. And uh, it was broadcast in honor of Dr. King's um, last day on the planet 51 years ago. And uh, Bill Withers, who had made his transition last Friday, April 3rd.
lovely day. That's one of Bill Withers' um, memorable songs, one of many of his wonderful uh, songs that he composed and sang. And that was Amakela Gaston um, from her uh, Being in Love uh, CD. And we want to um, celebrate the life of Bill Withers, um, William Harrison Withers, Jr., um, born in Slab Fork, West Virginia, July 4th, 1938. Uh, and he made his transition yesterday, Friday, April 3rd, 2020. And uh, he, uh, he was from a family of 13, and he was the youngest um, an American-born singer, songwriter, and musician who performed and recorded from 1970 until 1985. And among his major hits, including Lovely Day, um, were Ain't No Sunshine, Grandma's Hands, Use Me, Lean On Me, and Just the Two of Us. However, he was certainly so much more, and we learned about these other dimensions of this man who stopped recording for 33 years to have a family and a, and uh, be a father. Um, we learned about that in this wonderful film, uh, Still Bill, which is available on YouTube. You can see it for free. Uh, co-directed um, by friends and colleagues, uh, Damani Baker and Alex Black. And uh, they grew up here in the San Francisco Bay Area, went to University High School, and um, now uh, uh, Damani is teaching uh, on the East Coast. And uh, this film, though, Still Build, is just wonderful. And Damani and I had a conversation about the film when it was having um, a, uh, a run at the Kabuki Theater in San Francisco. So we had this conversation in October 2009, so it's been a minute, and uh, and it's a really wonderful conversation. So I'm going to rebroadcast that today for you, and then I'm going to play the audio for the film in its entirety so you can sit back and just think about those days when radio was the medium. <laughs> just enjoy this wonderful story uh, of Bill Withers and uh, and it's, you know, interspersed with this great music, so it's just really wonderful. And and then we're going to uh, close the show with a reflection on Dr. King, who um, yesterday, uh, April 3rd, he gave that famous speech where uh, what people remember is that he, you know, the part of the speech where he talks about going to the mountaintop and and seeing so much further than, than the present moment where he was, you know, in Memphis to help, you know, with the uh, – uh, the sanitation workers who were organizing uh, a union, and uh, and so he um, um, he came out that morning, which is today, the fourth, April fourth, and he was standing on the balcony of the Lorraine the motel um, with his colleagues um, Jesse Jackson, Andrew Young, and some others, and he was shot and he died, and he was he was thirty nine, and um, so. Um, happened 52 years ago. Some people are not even 52 years who are, are within the sound of my voice. Um, however, you know, in, in his 39 years, you know, he did so much. Um, similarly, um, Malcolm X, you know, who was also um, killed when he was 39. And uh, so we just think about just sort of 
the possibilities, you know, and, and how we have to make the most of the moment that we are in because we're not guaranteed any other moments, that's for sure. Um, and so we're going to be honoring those men, as I, as I mentioned today, and, uh, and, um, and, and we're going to be listening to um, an interview with um, uh, this wonderful actress, uh, uh, Simone Missick, who um, played uh, character Kamei in Katori Hall's Mountaintop. Really, really wonderful um, play that um, had a lot of Bay Area um, debuts. And so this is one interview. I've had other interviews with other um, actors and actresses who who performed in this particular play. But this that's the one I'm going to be sharing with you. And, um, and before... Um, we start. I think I'm gonna play a little "Sweet Honey in the Rock." Um, this is a this is a really um, wonderful um, song that uh, is actually the um, uh, Sonia Sanchez wrote wrote a uh, a poem called. Um, a poem that's called A Letter to Dr. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, and Sweet Honey and the Rock uh, set it to music. And it's really, really wonderful. So we're going to play a little music um, in the beginning right here. I'm going to start with uh, McLeod and Quinn. Um, <laughs> look what the what light did. And then we're going to play uh, something from Sweet Honey. I'm thinking about that particular poem, but we might play something else. And then we'll go right into the interview with Damani. And then we're going to go into the interview with um, uh, Simone. And um, and then we'll play the first, we'll play play the, uh, the, the, uh, the soundtrack. The soundtrack, not the soundtrack. We're going to play the audio <laughs> of the film. I just, you know, sort of extracted the audio of the film, which I said you can watch on YouTube still, Bill. So enjoy as we uh, we pay honor to these two men um, and we pour an audible libation. And, and I'm sure this will certainly make you feel encouraged um, at a time uh, when the world is sort of trying to figure out um, how to manage when you have to physically distance yourselves from those people you love. You know, think about the parents um, or the children who have loved ones that are, you know, in, um, uh, you know, convalescent facilities and hospitals and places where you can't visit because you don't want to, you know, take germs into these places where, uh, the populations are really vulnerable, and then you think about people who are who are dying alone, and and the family loved ones want to be there, but they can't be there. Um, so anyway, uh, there's a lot lot happening. Um, you know, people losing their jobs, um, people who are working um, under really uh, stressful situations. You know, trying to stay healthy, but also you know wanting to help you know, the nation continue to function. So, you know, there there's a whole lot to think about. But as one of the poets said yesterday on our show, um, uh, which was a, uh, a sort of a kickoff, wonderful two hours of poetry uh, for National Poetry Month, 
And, of course, you know, poetry is revolutionary. Artists are revolutionary. So uh, John Curl said in one of his poems that, um, you know, we don't want to return to normal because normal wasn't good anyway. <laughs> so, we, you know, we look at uh, this situation and, and we look at, you know, what is it, what is the good of the situation that we want to continue after we aren't in the situation anymore? And another poet yesterday said on the show that, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of communities throughout the world have experienced these kind of situations where they were, you know, um, homebound for indefinite periods of time. You know, we're not used to that in this country, but other others are in, are used to this kind of thing, and they are not able to go out and get food and go out and walk their dogs and go out creation. You know, making sure they keep a safe distance from others who are also out, you know, getting some fresh air and getting some sunshine. So, so look what the light did, McLeet and Quinn.
Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and culture program of the African Sisters Media Network. Wanda'spicks.asmnetwork.org. Tune in Wednesday 6 to 7 a.m. and Fridays 8 to 10 a.m. Pacific Time. This is a black arts and culture site. We will be exploring the African diaspora via the writing, performance, both musical and theatrical, film and stage, as well as the visual arts of Africans in the diaspora and those influenced by these aesthetic forms of expression. I'm interested in the political and social ramifications of art on society, specifically movements supported by these artists and their forebearers. It is my claim that the artists are the true revolutionaries. Their work honest and filled with raw, unedited passion. They are true heroes. Ashe. So remember, visit us on Wednesdays 6 to 7 a.m. and Fridays 8 to 10 a.m. Pacific Time on wandaspicks.asmnnetwork.org. Most people don't know or don't care who you are. Sometimes if I tell somebody who I am, they'll say, no, you ain't. Songwriting is to be simple and yet profound. Girls seem to understand how to do that. Most of the major record companies call me up. They had this rhythm and blues syndrome in their mind with the horns and the three chicks and the gold of Mason. And I wasn't really into that. So I thought, well, I got this good job making these toilets. I don't need you cats. My real life was when I was just a working guy. You know, it's okay to head out for wonderful, but on your way to wonderful, you're going to have to pass through all right. And when you get to all right, take a good look around and get used to it, because that may be as far as you're going to go. Millions and millions of people that would love to see Fairbill Withers again. I want everybody to look at me and everybody to want to know me. And there was a time when that was that was it. Bill Withers could work a whole lot and make a whole lot of money if he wanted to do that. I'm trying to give myself a chance to get driven. Thoreau, I think, said the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. I would like to know how it feels for my desperation to get louder. Francisco 
for a run at the Sundance uh, Kabuki Theaters, right, in San Francisco? That's right. That's right. You know, it, it's part of a, an amazing outreach program that our distributor has in place, B-Side Entertainment. And the, the idea is that you give the film to people uh, for free, basically, and they can host their own screenings and theaters and bars and homes, community centers. Uh, it can be used as a fundraising tool. And so a gentleman from San Francisco contacted us and said, you know, we, we're huge Bill Withers fans, and if we can get it in the kabuki, can we have it? And and we said, absolutely, go for it. <laughs> well, that's, that's easy. That's, that's very nice. i got to think about something. Maybe we can put it here at the College of Alameda or something. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, the the idea behind it is it, it, it you know, one, it just puts the film in front of as many people as possible. Uh, which is for filmmakers, that's, that's ultimately kind of what would make us happiest. And it drives DVD sales and just the awareness around the project just kind of spans much larger than doing, you know, your typical uh, five-day run at the local art house and then it kind of disappears this way, to, you know, still build, just kind of uh, be around the country for months. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. That's really awesome. Um, let me let me tell our audience a little something about you. Besides, you're a native of the San Francisco Bay Area. Oh Can yeah. Explain you, even though you're no longer here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet it was really great for you know friends and family for you to come back through. Um, you know, uh, right. this month. You know, for the uh, festival. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Damani was uh, selected by Filmmaker Magazine as one of the 25 new faces in independent film. His career spans documentaries, music videos, and advertisements. Some of Baker's uh, documentaries include Grenada, A Dream Deferred, which revisits the events and circumstances of the 1983 U.S. invasion of Grenada, and Return, an award-winning film that is traditional African medicine. Mm, Right. This year, Baker directed music videos for Maisha's single, Wannabe, nominated for a 2009 Grammy, and Morley's Women of Hope, inspired by pro-democracy activist Aung San Suu Kyi. Mm-hmm, Aung San Suu Kyi. Mm-hmm. Okay. As director, his commercial clients have included Nike. We don't like Nike. Uh, why don't <laughs> <laughs> I mean, after you got paid, but. <laughs> uh, and their 2006 World Cup Play Beautiful campaign. Baker right. has also got several uh, viral campaigns for Puma, Wired Magazine, and BMW for Late Night and Weekends. In addition right. to his professional work as director, uh, Damani Baker is a guest professor at Sarah Lawrence College Film and New Media Department. That's where That's Alice Walker went. That's right. And the director That's right. of Quest for Global Healing Film Series in Bali, Indonesia. Oh, yeah. My sister was from Indonesia. In uh-huh. 2009, he completed Steel Bill, which we're talking about, about the life and music of Bill Withers. The yeah. film premiered in the United States at South by Southwest in March of 2009 and features a soundtrack with previously unreleased tracks. Yeah, it's really hot. And the uh, co-director, producer, executive producer is Alex Vallack. Uh, uh, uh-huh. Alex Vallack. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess he's not going to be able to join us. Yeah, he, he, you know, he's, uh, of of our partnership, he's the one that has uh, two children. And so he is, <laughs> he is on daddy duty right now, getting everybody off to school. And uh, But he is my partner in crime, and, you know, we did this from the ground up together. And actually, 
went to high school together in San Francisco. Um, So there's two Bay Area Area kids that that are behind it. So it's it's really special for us. Yeah, which high school? We went to University High School in uh, San Francisco, right on Jackson and Pacific. Okay, okay, nice, nice. So it's about, you know, 21 years of friendship. And uh, Mm -hmm. when we started to work together professionally, putting together a Bill Withers film just seemed like a no-brainer because we both had been – so in love with the music and, you know, came to it in our own ways. You know, Alex uh, played in a band in college, and he was at Columbia covering Bill Withers tunes. Um, I didn't play in the band, but, you know, I grew up in Oakland, and, and in my father's house in particular, I remember uh, the Live at Carnegie Hall album being on constant rotation. So in a way, you know, Bill Withers was the soundtrack of of my house, and there was a different kind of, cultural socialization that was happening um, without even realizing, you know, how you just have these memories of, of, of a space or a person or an emotion. And when it led to Bill Withers for me, Alex and I started collaborating and said, well, let's just take both of our journeys with Bill Withers and put them together and see what we can do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Bill Withers is one of my all-time favorite musicians. Uh, right. Performers, person, and uh, he was uh, in a recent film uh, documenting documenting uh-huh. the concert at the Rumble in the Jungle right. um, fight, and uh, Soul and, Power. Uh, mm-hmm. well, with the former Zaire, and with uh-huh. yeah, Soul Power, right, right. I'm like, oh, here's uh-huh. the wizard. Oh my God, because you know uh-huh. he, you don't see him performing. I mean, he before he retired professionally, sort of. He wasn't performing like a whole lot, and I right. and I'm really happy to like know the backstory of this life and where he's from and how he's got into music and and I'm like, whoa, how did you all do this? I mean, like to be, I mean, you were everywhere. All these great moments with, you know, the Dream Team, like the scholars. You know, you've got Tabitha Smiley and Cornell West and right. Um, yeah, and and you just you know like there who was there a third person um, in those. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, it took this project took almost ten years to uh, to produce. It, you know, Alex and I both, you know, as you read in our in our bios, you know, we both do a lot of other work and 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 we're very excited about uh, just filmmaking in general. You know, we've been doing ads and other documentaries and all these other things, but the Bill Withers piece was was a passion project for us. So we started it ten years ago. And just to date it, you know, this is pre-real uh, Internet takeoff, you know. And so doing research on someone who definitely made a point of not making it um, easy to be found, uh, you know, we had a hard time the first few years just trying to find out where he was and what he was up to and how do we get in touch with Bill Withers, you know. So you have these two fans who, you know, turned filmmakers who really wanted to, to do his story but didn't even know where to start. And so eventually – um, we stumbled upon uh, Marshall Withers' email address, his wife, who manages his publishing. And through a business contact, we, we emailed her and said, look, you know, we're these two guys. We're from the Bay Area. We love your husband's music. We w- would love to do a film on his life's music. And she said, oh, you know, I don't know. You know, Bill, he just does his thing now, and I don't know if that's something he'd be interested in. So we didn't push. But then we got more excited about it, of course, and we're like, well, we've got to get this film made. And we wrote her again and wrote her again and wrote her again. She eventually agreed to meet with us, 
And uh, funny story, she said, uh, well, you know, I'm in L.A. And we said, well, we are too. Meanwhile, we're, we're living in New York. So we, we bought tickets the next day, flew to Los Angeles, magically appeared for lunch, and had this wonderful lunch with Marsha, who was so gracious and, and took some time out with us. And uh, we just kind of talked to her about our intent. And I think she said, well, you know, you guys seem like okay guys. I'll let my, my husband know we've had this conversation. And then another year or two passes, and then another year passes. So it was, it was a lot of this kind of momentum that wasn't leading us towards a film, but towards other things. I mean, we talked to Celebrate Brooklyn, a big outdoor free concert that happens here in the summers. And we said, you know, we don't have Bill Withers yet, but we have this idea for a project. Well, would, would you guys ever consider doing a, a tribute concert? And, of course, mm-hmm. it's that, another no-brainer. They said, well, yeah, we'll do a tribute concert. We'll get something like that going. So they start producing it. Another year passes. So you can see how all these years start to pass. Meanwhile, the two directors don't have Bill Withers at all. And finally, uh, you know, we got this green light from Celebrate Brooklyn. They're going to do a tribute show. Um, 10,000 people come out to these shows. And the producer said, you know, well, we don't feel comfortable moving forward if Bill hasn't signed off. At least give us his blessing on doing this show in his honor. And we said, you know what, we're going we're gonna to follow up on that. So we call Marsha. Marsha, this concert's happening. It's actually going to happen. Is there any way uh, we might be able to talk to Bill and at the very least just get his blessing? That's it. Like, if we could just get his blessing to do this concert, we'll shoot it. We'll turn it into the film we want to make, and that's fine. She said, okay. And, again, we fly out to L.A., and uh, we're nervous. We're sitting in Bill's office. He hasn't arrived yet. And in walks Bill Withers, and, you know, so many things happen for us. You know, as filmmakers, as people who love the music and, you know, all these years of just trying to have a conversation with him led to this moment of, of really just getting his blessing. And what we thought might have been a 45-minute conversation, a half hour, hey, guys, nice to meet you. Yeah, sure, do your show. Five-hour conversation. We're having a great time. We're talking wow. and connecting. And, uh, and then we push it a little further and say, well, you know, Bill, what would be great if we could get you on camera? <laughs> For a half hour, just just cut in a couple of interview bites and pieces here and there between the show, and we'll have some performers at Celebrate Brooklyn, and maybe we'll cut to a section of an interview with you if you give us even 30 minutes. All right, sure. You know, we go back home, we rally our crew. Uh, Alex and I, at that <clears throat> at that point, excuse me, we're financing it ourselves, and we take the crew to Los Angeles and we start uh, shooting Bill. And we thought again he'd give us our half hour, and that conversation went on for five hours. The next day, another five hours. And then three years later, and about 350 wow, hours. Five hours. <laughs> wow. No breaks, no water, no bathroom. Bill just, just let it out. And, and you'll see in the film that interview becomes kind of the foundation of the core mm-hmm. conversation we cut back to throughout the entire piece. So it took, it took that long, um, but uh, it was worth every minute of not knowing if, if it were going to happen or not, but, you know, to 350 hours and three years later uh, with a, a soul cultural icon, we just, we just, we feel so thankful. Yeah, yeah, and we're thankful too. I mean, when I, when I, I saw the title Still Bill, I, I didn't know that you actually had the real Bill Withers in the film. I thought you were <laughs> right. playing him because I'm like, no, and, and I was like, oh, he really looks like <laughs> whatever this actor is. And I'm like, 
And, oh, my God, it's just such a journey. And, it's you know, it's the film is long enough for you to really get a sense of who this man is, you know. That's right. Um, you know, as an artist and as a human being. And, mm-hmm. and the themes that, you know, because, you know, his birthday is a part of the, of the, the shooting. Um, right. How old does he turn? Uh, in the film, he turned 70. Uh, he's 71 yeah. now. His birthday is uh, July 4th. Oh, wow. And we celebrate his birthday even when we're yeah. not celebrating his birthday, huh? <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, you know, coming from a small town and mm-hmm. and you, co- you cover, you know, sort of, you know, coming up from a, a rural community, you know, having, sure. uh, you know, really strong um, uh, woman, you know, his grandmother, you know, as, yeah. you know, his real cheerleader and advocate as a child. Yeah. Covers right. the issues around around you know disability and right. and the military and being a right. black man and the music industry and, and it's all and in there having, <laughs> having a family and what does it mean to be a father and <laughs> yeah I mean you know well, and, and also <laughs> I'm sorry go ahead <laughs> no I was gonna say you know it's all of those things I mean it's just so wonderful to hear, to to hear that because I think what Alex and I started off uh putting together you know you know in our in our imagination probably was more of a traditional biopic you know and it, what it turned into was so much larger and three-dimensional and, and all of the kind of themes that you're you're touching on are are really why we kind of fell in love with the project and you know anyone we felt could have made a bill withers documentary about the musician or or you know the icon um, but that information is online, and you know now that you know ten years later the internet's live and well. So if anybody wants to find out anything about Bill Withers and what he recorded and when and who's on the album and you know those kind of things, that's all available. So the, the Bill Withers wiki page was exactly the film we didn't want to make. Um, and after you sit with Bill for five hours straight and you listen to, you know, the cadence and the metaphor and the poetry and you know, he does not waste words. And we, within that first, you know, day, Alex and I went back to the hotel that night and we said, oh, this is, to- this is totally something else. This is, this is far richer than anything we could have ever imagined. And uh, we built the film around that. And so just, just like you're saying, those, those themes of being a father, you know, a, a, an elder black man and his relationship to his daughter and all these other things that, you know, for me as a black filmmaker, I, I felt particularly connected to because I had never seen that before. You know, sure, there's this scripts and some great stories out there, and there's some just brilliant filmmakers that have done amazing stuff. But for me, you know, in, in our process, I said, you know, I, I really want to put images out there that um, are really three-dimensional and inspire real conversation, and and you can see yourself, and here is a definitely, you know, upper middle class is not, you know, not to put all Bill's business out there, but he's comfortable, you know, and, you know, he's a father and a husband and, and so many other things and not afraid to, to weep on camera in front of hundreds of people. Um, And at this point, yeah, more than once. And at this point with the film touring thousands and thousands of people. So that just kind of says something about who he is and, uh, you know, lets, I think the audience in into uh, you know, the head of the person who came up with those lyrics that we all know and have known for 35 
years, and there's a reason why we still know them. And and we hope that Spill Bill is more than just kind of the music film and that kind of journey. But I think what people are showing up to and leaving with are two different things, which is really uh, our our mission. And it's been great to see the responses uh, from audiences around the world who all love Bill Withers and will show up. You know, we've been in, yeah, I mean, just in the past month. Um, Nashville, Tennessee, to Oakland, to uh, Belgium, to London. You know, this, later this afternoon, I go to Barcelona, Spain, and across the world, people are responding beyond the reason why. You know, they show up. They all show up because they love Bill Withers and they want to hear a few bars of "Ain't No Sunshine" and "Lean on Me." But by the end, they've all they've all had something else. You know, and I'm sitting in Munich, Germany. And an all-German audience, and people are weeping and clapping and singing along, and it's it's and you realize you've actually crossed the threshold of kind of biopic and uh, kind of that very simple presentation of someone from the past. Like Bill is present, you know, in everything he does, and hopefully the the film inspires that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I don't know what I can say because I don't have any forgives. Like, okay, what can we talk about? Um, so I was wondering, <laughs> yeah, because you know I just love it. You know the way his wife talks about how they met, and uh, and then you know his children, you know his son and his daughter, and you know right. and that she, you know she's a singer and she's going like, well, my goodness, you know I'm the daughter of Bill Withers. <laughs> You're like, what can I? <laughs> I mean, right. you know, I, I, right. yeah, how can I have a career when people might be measuring me by, you know, my father's standard, you know, as opposed right. to, you know, measuring me by myself. And then, you know, that dream team that you have is really cool yeah. the way you have, you know, where you're telling the story. And then you'll right. have, you know, you'll sort of have like this sort of um, this sidebar, live sidebar, where, where right. you know, you're just having these, these scholars and, right. and leaders in our community talking. So talk about sort of the structure of the film, and you sure. tell us what you, what what's okay to say, because I don't uh-huh. know what I can what I can bring out in the film. You know, I mentioned uh-huh. about you know some of the themes uh, around family and disability and the industry. Right. Um, maybe you could talk about um, you know uh, some of the the pleasant. I really love the you know when you take us into a studio. And right. he actually, you know, works on some music, which we hope right. it gets released. <laughs> right, right. No, we do too. We definitely do too. Well, you know, the the, the you know, as I mentioned in the beginning, uh, you know, Alex and I definitely had um, kind of no idea where the film would go once we once oh. Bill kind of signed signed on, and a, one of our original ideas was to put together uh, not just you know scholars. Um, but just music lovers and different community members, and uh, we coordinated a bunch of shoots um, around Los Angeles and New York. Uh, sometimes it would be a group of women. Uh, sometimes it would be a young group of men talking about soul and music and uh, relationships and uh, activism. And so we were trying to build a chorus of everyday people having conversations around Bill. Now, that would be sprinkled in with a couple scholars and some really kind of amazing folks. Now, that idea, I think, came up originally because we weren't sure how much Bill was going to give us. And we said, well, we can't, we can't have a film of just this one interview and maybe a concert. We're, we're going to have to start building a supporting cast. And, you know, two things were happening at once. One, people started to show up, like Dr. West and Tavis Smiley and all these wonderful uh, characters, 
Um, and also Bill started to show up. So two things were happening at once. And, oh. and fortunately, we were able to kind of let Bill's voice tell the story and didn't necessarily have to lean on this original idea of, of the supporting cast or the chorus. We, we kept, obviously, uh, Dr. West and Tavis Smiley just because that was a dream. Like you said, it was a dream team. It was, <laughs> it was, it was an amazing opportunity. We couldn't believe that uh, we'd be allowed in with our cameras. And that literally happened because Bill and uh, Tavis Smiley are buddies. And uh, and Cornell West and and Tavis Smiley are friends, and it, it happened to be a, a, a trip to Los Angeles, and uh, we were just in the right place at the right time. And Bill said, "Hey, well, I'm going to go over to Tavis Smiley's house," and we worked it out with with uh, Tavis and 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 Cornell West, and they agreed to to let us come by with cameras, and, and there it is, there it is. And it's oh, nice wow. because you, that's another thing that I feel like you don't get to see. You know, here are you know here. here a couple of generations just having conversation um and you have Dr. West who puts it in you know in his language and delivers and it's solid and it's clear and then you have Bill who delivers in his language and it's solid and clear but it's not the same you know but they're both in the same space and uh it was it was it really was magical we were like is this happening <laughs> like <laughs> You know, Tav, Tavis Smiley is like in his flip-flops and, you know, in the backyard and everyone's just kind of sitting around and we're just all talking. And I said, this is, this is unreal. This is really unreal. Yeah, yeah. So what other unreal experiences do you have? I mean, it was really cool, you know, hearing, you know, his buddies from the military service right. uh, where he did, you know, sing. He, you know, but he, he never thought about uh, music as a career. You know, he was... Right. We were building, uh, you know, after he left the military, I don't remember what his job was there. Um, But then he he worked, his career was he was building toilets for airplanes, right? That's right. That's right. He left the military, and he he was a working man, exactly. Yeah, totally, yeah. And um, and he, you know, he would, you know, perform, you know, at, I guess, at uh, what we call now um, sort of open mics. Mm -hmm. But... That wasn't a career idea. And then what was it? What happened that sort of, you know, he? It was really funny uh, because if if he wouldn't have, if he wouldn't have, um, it was sort of like if there was like this moment, and I don't remember the details. There was this moment right. where if he wouldn't have went for what he went for, he wouldn't have had a musical career. He would have still been, uh, he would have retired, right. you know, with the air, uh, with the airline. Right. Yeah, sure. and. Just those kind of lessons, and then you know, just finding out, you know, sort of where the song "Grandma's Hands" comes from. As you're right. filming him walking down the road in the town, and he's like shaking hands with his friends, you know. Yeah. yeah, talk about, you know, sort of. Um, I mean, everyone knows that really, really famous song, but you know, right. talk about sort of that, you know, Bill Withers' life, sort of emblematic of, of how. I don't know, um, arbitrary things are and how just, mm-hmm. you know, we make these choices and how these choices can take our lives in directions that we never even realize. Right. And then and, and just and just, just how, you know, one can become famous, how fame, you know, which is one thing that I get from the film, is that being famous can change you. Right. And, and no, sometimes absolutely. you don't like the person you become. And so you decide right. to, well, and you remember who you were. It's like, okay, right. I'm not going to do this anymore. 
Right, right. And you know, Bill, you know, and he, you know, as he says in the film, he wasn't very good at it. You know, and uh he he says, you know, fame was not something that he'd ever uh imagined for himself. You know, when he recorded Ain't No Sunshine in the studio, he kept his day job. He d- still didn't believe that this was, you know, going to be his big break. I mean, he's like, well, you know, I have this good job. Uh, I can't quit my job just because I'm in a record studio and a couple people think I have a couple uh, songs to share. Um, so that is his still his philosophy. And part of the reason why he isn't in the public eye in the same way is because he never committed to it in the way that I think, uh, you know, maybe pop star or contemporary musicians do now where they're, their only survival, their survival is based on um, the public eye and fame. Now, sure, you know, Bill sold a lot of albums and, and lived very comfortably, but he also started in the business very late. You know, he was, in his, he was in his early 30s. So he'd already lived by the time fame hit. So he knew the value of, of work and that any of this kind of material stuff could be taken away in a heartbeat. So when it came time to... Uh, say you know what I'm 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 done with this part of the record business. It was very easy for him to kind of go right back into being a father and going right back into being a husband and saying, well, you know, I knew what that was before I started. So, you know, if my foundation is it does not include fame, then it's very easy to, to rely on that foundation in your in your 70s. You know, does that make sense? I mean, it's just. That's that's his philosophy, and you know, there's so much to learn from that. I think even for us as filmmakers, you know, we stepped up to him as directors, and even had to check ourselves and say, you know, well, we're just going to go at Bill Withers' pace <laughs> because it's all great, and this is this is a gift to step up and be in the life of Bill Withers as an artist, and we just need to not kind of nurture that moment. And so, we've learned lessons through from Bill about fame and uh, the values that kind of get put on. Um, you know, this this popularity contest that really goes on in the industry. So when he says he's retired from the music business, that doesn't mean he's not making music. You know, so this is someone who can live very comfortably not being famous and still enjoy his art, which is just an amazing thing to hear and watch and, and have experienced for almost three years of shooting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I just can't even imagine uh what else you could do as 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 an artist, you know, as a filmmaker, right. as a cinematographer? Right. Uh, I'm talking about you. I mean, okay, well, right. every like this is a standard now. Right. Uh, your film still builds, you know, the movie. <laughs> I'm like, right. okay, well, you know, we, you know, gosh, I mean, where do I go from here? I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. What's next? Oh man, yeah, exactly. Exactly. To which you all do next was my goodness. This is such a high standard. I mean, I'm sure the other films that I don't know, you know, that I read about in your um, your bio are really fabulous because obviously, you know, you and and um, uh, and Alex, you know, Uh you know, had, you know, you knew how to persevere. You knew how to be patient. uh, You knew that you know you knew what a good story was when you when you saw it when you thought about it and. And you know that kind of tenacity, and 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 just really shows in the quality of this 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 work. I mean, oh my oh, God! Thank you. So thank so tell you. our audience again when they can see it since they missed it. And you know the film is available online at stillbuildthemovie.com. dot com. It you is. Know, and, and so you can buy it. Yeah. It's not that expensive. Is it under twenty dollars? Right? Yeah, it's nineteen dollars. 
I think it's 1999. <laughs> and, but again, we have the holiday season is approaching. Kwanzaa, buy the film for Kwanzaa. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and, you know, it's, it'll be touring for the next uh, three months. B-Side officially launched with us on October 20th. And so they're they're coordinating these community screenings. It'll be in theaters. It'll be at the Brooklyn Academy of Music at BAM here in New York uh, in December. So you know, every every week the film is is seems to be playing somewhere um, around the world, and the official DVD launch will be in February. But you can pre-order online now. It's still the, oh, so the movie.com. Oh, okay, because you, yeah. you want to get a first run, right? Is this like yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, super. So people in Barcelona will have the opportunity to see it, right? Because you're going there. They will, I'm going there in a few hours, and um, oh, nice. it, I'm really, really excited to see it in in Spain. And, you know, we, I get emails uh, daily about kind of screenings <laughs> that have happened and people's response to it. So I'm really curious to see uh, how a Spanish audience responds to it. I think it, it, should, it should be really a lot of fun. Oh, certainly, certainly. So, so um, when is it going to be um, at Sundance Kabuki in San Francisco? What are the it, uh, that is November. I want to say November twelfth. Uh, November twelfth, I believe. Yeah, double check on stillbuildthemovie.com. But okay. it's it's uh, actually I think the Kabuki and somewhere else in the Bay Area uh, oh, really? oh, as cool. well. But still, still, the movie site gets updated daily, so whatever's going on in your state, it'll be there. Okay, excellent. So they people just need to check stillbuildthemovie.com uh, uh-huh. and, and let us That's tell right. them where it is in their neighborhood. That's right. There's actually a, a map of the country, and it has a little Still Bill <laughs> sticker, and it shows you exactly where it's playing every week. Oh, that's excellent. And then, you know, people yeah. who are interested can just get in touch with um, the directors and mm-hmm. um, on the website, and uh-huh. you might be able to actually host it if it's not coming here. That's right. right. You can host mm-hmm. your own screening. Uh, B-Side will send you a, a still bill kit, and uh, we'll have a DVD. And you just coordinate with uh, B-Side and let them know how many people you're expecting, and they post it online and help you advertise it. And uh, anyone anyone in the country can host their own screening. Oh, still Bill Kit. Wow, Bill. Yeah. Well, that's heck of cool. We're starting a movement. We're starting a movement. Oh, my God, Damani. <laughs> well, you know, because the, client, the the landscape has changed, and I think it's changed for the better. You know, the, like, you know I mentioned earlier, the traditional outlet for independent films have always been uh, you know, these very short runs at, at art houses, which are, are fantastic, and, you know, some of the best work comes out of that and I've, I've been lucky enough to see some films at, at the you know Kabuki or or the uh, Angelica here in New York and they're, they're very supportive but the the runs are so short and so you, you you work so hard you know producing your film and if only you know 20 people get to see it over two days in an art house and then it's gone um, you know I, I just feel like this 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 kind of limited release, community-based screenings, you know, host your own screening, really puts the film out in a way that uh, we could have never imagined. And this just lets us know that this is the, kind of the new process, at least for, for us, with, uh, with how to kind of reach people who may be interested in, in learning about Bill Withers. And, you know, maybe the next film will do something different, but it seems like, you know, people love Bill Withers, and we want as many people to see this as possible. Yeah, we do love Bill Withers, and he's a... You know, we didn't know why we love him, and now we have some some 
we know you've informed us. Now we have we right. say, we love me because of blah 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 da 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 da. Before we just right. loved him because we just felt that he was a the kind of person that we should love. We just right, felt that right. he Now we know. Oh, okay. Right, yeah. right. We, we can we actually have content to add to our feelings. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. It's like the um, yeah. it's like the emotion the emotions are confirmed. Totally. Totally. Yes. Thank you for affirming yeah. that for us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just I just looked it up. It's it's at the Kabuki November 11th at 7:15 p.m. 7:15. Excellent. Thank you so much. Yeah. My pleasure. Well, well, have a great time in Spain, and and Thank certainly you. look forward to talking to you again on the show and. Anytime. Good luck, uh, you know, creatively, and wow, I would tell all my students who might want to transfer to another uh, institution um, from that community college, College of Alameda, you know, definitely uh-huh. look into Sarah Lawrence so they can take your class. Oh, come on over. It's, it's, I, it, that's my, that's, my uh, that's the most consistent thing uh, in my life. I love teaching so much. I, I only teach one class uh, mm-hmm. on Mondays, but it is so refreshing, and um, they give me energy, and I hope to give it back, and it's just really a great relationship, and uh, my, I come from a family of professors, so uh, it just felt like uh, a natural thing to do. Mm-hmm, certainly, certainly. Right, well, I'm so happy that Sonia, um, you know, told me that, you know, that you were her godson, and you responded, yeah. and, you <laughs> yes, of course. Oh, you find it just all Fania has to do is, is is send a note and it's done. <laughs> and yes. it's done. And you know she's in the Grenada Dream Deferred film that hopefully will be okay. complete complete okay. next. So. Okay, super. Well, definitely keep me on your list so that I can um, you know see it and you know and give you another opportunity to share with us your we'll wonderful do. We'll do. work. Wonderful. All right, you take good care and have a safe journey. Thank you, Wanda. All right, you take good care. Bye-bye. Bye. We're speaking to Damani Daker, director, producer, cinematographer, of on November 11th, 7.15 at the Sundance Kabuki Theater in San Francisco. And if you're elsewhere in the country or in the world, go to their website. And uh, if, if the screening is not coming to you, you can definitely host one yourself. We I are so happy. <laughs> you take good care, Damani. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. We're so happy to have on the show Jackie Wright. <laughs> uh, that was a really wonderful conversation, and it's a great show. So if you want to listen to all of the rest of the uh, show, which includes an uh, interview with uh, Jackie Wright, um, who talks about um, Still Bill as a part of the um, Oakland International Film Festival um, that particular year that it came out. And, uh, and then we speak to uh, L. Peter Callender, who is the artistic director at um, the African American Shakespeare Company, and that was when he was starting. This was his first, uh, producing his first season there. And um, I think we speak to one other person, but I don't remember exactly the rest of that show, but it was phenomenal. So, um, yeah, you might want to hear the rest of it. And I wanted to let you know um, that... Um, Damani Baker's uh, film about Grenada, um, it's called um, The House on Coco Street, uh, did, um, was finished, and it was a part of, it was 2016 is that it was um, released, and it was opened uh, the Matatu Film Festival at the Grand Lake Theater, and um, and I wrote a review of that and about the uh, after, about the evening, um, and uh, 
that's um, in WandasPicks.com if you want to read that because we want to. We're running out of time. My goodness, um, <laughs> I'm up really early um, producing this show because I couldn't sleep. So, um, um, yeah, I'm not much certain how much longer I can last because I I woke up at what time was that? Um, 12:30, and now it's almost 6 a.m. And uh, it's been really fun, um, you know. Um, Watching Steel Bill again and listening to these this interview, um, you know that was uh, broadcast about ten years ago, and and then um, you know thinking about Dr. King and um, Katori Hall's uh, wonderful film Mountaintop that looks at that evening before um, that fateful April fourth in nineteen sixty eight, and it comes from a story that her mother told her. And so, um, so anyway, before we we jump into that part of our program, I'm going to um, instead of what I mentioned earlier on, what I was going to play, I'm going to play Nina Simone's uh, "Young, Gifted, and Black" uh, 1970 uh, tribute to her good friend Lorraine Hansberry, who was also an ancestor. So I say to both of the women artists, um, Lorraine Hansberry and Nina Simone, and and you know they worked really hard, uh, sort of in with Dr. King. And the whole civil rights movement, um, they they both sort of participated in that. Um, Lorraine Hansberry and Nina Simone, you know, as as children, you know, thinking about sort of the the racial barriers that Nina Simone crossed as a young prodigy uh, and pianist in the classics, uh, European classics, um, that is, and um, and then Lorraine Hansberry, you know, with her dad in Chicago being. Um, a uh, a broker, you know, buying homes in neighborhoods that did not have people of African descent uh, living there, and he would go in, buy the house, and live there, and how dangerous that was for the family. You know, she writes about this this um, you know brick coming through the window, and she had been sitting there moments before, and it it could have hurt her, and and about crosses being burned on their their lawns, but her father wanted to open up spaces for African people, people of African descent, to be able to live outside of you know those narrow parameters of of space that had been allocated to them. And so, um, so he you know was you know making his way with his family into opening these spaces. You know, as you know, he bought buildings and. Um, provided opportunities for housing for people of African descent. So I shade to his memory, too. So here's Nina Simone, uh, Young, Gifted, and Black. Nina and I also want to talk about a friend who uh, I miss more and more every day, every day. It seems that she comes alive more and more every day for the, all kinds of things written about her each day more and more. And I'm talking about Lorraine Handy Fay. In this month's Esquire, you will find two articles about her, and of course you know uh, who, she, who she is, mm-hmm. that. And there is a play downtown, at least it was when we left, called To Be Young, Gifted, it's still there, and, uh, and it's called To Be Young, Gifted, and Black. It's a story of her life. And um, 
say to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they have committed themselves to that over that. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around. We aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. That's a little excerpt of that famous speech that Martin King gave um, the night before um, the uh, scheduled march with the uh, sanitation this workers in Memphis. Special report. Oh. <laughs> um, reporting for CBS News uh-oh. from New York. Oh, wait a second. The Reverend Martin oh, Luther King Jr. was shot to death by an assassin late today as he stood on a balcony in Memphis, Tennessee. Dr. King had planned to lead another civil rights march in Memphis next Monday. We got the latest on the story now from Russ Hodge, news director of WREC-TV. Oh, I didn't know that was going to be the second part of it. I didn't listen to all of it. That's a lesson there. Um, That was interesting. Um, Yeah, yeah. So as I mentioned earlier at the beginning of of the show that we were going to um, conclude with um, an interview with um, Simone Missik. That's why I thought playing a song by Nina Simone. Um, you know, Simone Missik and then Nina Simone. I thought that'd be kind of cool. Yeah, so, you know, playing to be young, gifted, and black. So I'm going to read what I wrote about um, 
uh, mountaintop for those who don't know the play. And and then I'm going to just jump right into the interview with um, Simone Musique. And then um, we are, I think I'm, we're going to still, well, we don't have time to play the um, uh, the film um, sound, the, the film, um, you know, the uh, the sound the soundtrack from the film because it's longer than we're going to have time left. Maybe I'll play. Maybe I'll play play it out and for an hour. <laughs> you could maybe go and watch it on YouTube because, like I said, it is it is there, and you could watch it free of charge. So, um, yeah, um, the uh, Mount, mountaintop was at Theater Works Silicon Valley at the Lucy Stern Theater in Palo Alto. Um, in in 2013 in april actually it it covered the weekend of of these 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 tragic events um the speech um that's referenced um the night before when um Kame meets Dr. King who's staying at the uh the Lorraine Hotel where motel where she worked and um and and then that Sunday follow that Sunday of that weekend, so it was you know as far as strategic um, planning, it was a good good time to be able to have this play uh, in the theater because of the conversations that were um, generated around the topic. So the play looks at the evening, as I mentioned before, Martin Luther King Jr. is killed. The one-act play takes place at the Lorraine Motel the night before. King and Kamei, a maid, spend the night together in conversation, camaraderie, and comfort. We meet a king who smokes Paul Malls, is honest about his fears, loves his family, and is a devoted servant to his creator, even when the two disagree. On on Thursday, um, April 4, 2013, at 8 p.m., Dr. Claiborne Carson a Stanford history professor who also edits the papers of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke at the theater, and that should have been really nice. Um, the archives at uh, uh, at the Martin Luther King Jr. Center are really, really well done. Really well, yeah, well researched. Is only a scholar such as Dr. Claiborne Carson's caliber, um, you know, you know, would would certainly, you know dictate that kind of scholarship and that kind of attention and he he does a wonderful job and a lot of the work is also digitized if not all of it so you can go online and, and read read the work um and the context that the work comes from and um let's see where is it I'm looking for <laughs> for the uh I, I actually I'm looking at the wrong um thought I had it up but I actually had the wrong um <clears throat> The wrong show pulled up. Darn it! I'm not sure, but the wrong um, uh, wrong article pulled up. Um, so um, wait, please excuse me for a second while I I find it um, in my blog. Oh, here we go. This is it. Um, so I call this uh, through a looking glass. Through the looking glass. When Martin King gave his prophetic speech the evening before the faded march with the sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee, Carrie Mae Golden, who lived just around the corner from the Lorraine Motel, wanted to attend. But her mother, 
was like, no, you know they're going to bomb that church. Haven't you heard the rumors? And so the 15-year-old Carrie May, who had participated in the march just a week before that, uh, disintegrated that march. That is disintegrated into violence that left two that left 16-year-old Larry Payne dead. The reason King was in town in the first place missed his speech, something she regretted the rest of her life. It is amazing how ghosts, whether ideas or people or events, have a way of wafing into existence when the time is right. Carrie Mae Golden's story became comes the genesis for the award-winning play, The Mountaintop, which, after a successful run on Broadway in London, is back clothed in splendor in splendid wonder at Theaterworks Silicon Valley, March 6 through April 7, 2013, after Memphis native playwright Katori Hall's work had his initial stage reading at Bay Area Playwrights Festival many years ago. I remember that Saturday afternoon at the Magic Theater so well. What a premiere to focus on. What a premise to focus on. The space between Martin King's return to the motel after his speech and the morning march. What was he thinking that night? Was he preparing a speech for the next day? What were his thoughts in the audience that night at the church? Prophetic, King spoke of the mountaintop and the climb he might not complete as he dismissed any thoughts that the journey was not without its rewards. Was he alone? If not, who was with him that night? The mountaintop is not the playwright's mother's story. No, even though Carrie May's name is creatively reconstituted as Kame, Kame, portrayed by actress Simone Missick, Missick. Rather, mountaintop is a supposition based on the fact that if King visited the mountaintop, then he must have seen certain things which let him know the race was not one he could complete, yet would be completed because he placed such sturdy bricks on the road for others to follow. The play opens with King, portrayed by actor Adrian Roberts, craving a cigarette, a Paul Malls to be specific, as he waits for his friend Reverend Ralph Albernathy to bring him a pack from the store. King paces as he rehearses the lines in a speech he is drafting for the next day, his throat hurting as he sputters, coughs, and wheezes. He calls room service for coffee once he catches his breath, and when it arrives in the hands of the beautiful, spunky maid Kame, it's over for King, literally. The chemistry is electric, and the great leader and orator can't seem to let the girl go. The attraction is mutual, which is natural. King is a celebrity, yet one whose feet smell, drinks, smokes her brand of cigarettes, Paul Malls, too. And he is more importantly attracted to the pretty maid. One can admire, right? As the two talk about the riot which brings King to Memphis, the death of the youth Larry Payne, whom King feels such regret, what emerges is a man who is afraid, perhaps even terrorized, from the stresses he has lived through, bombings, stabbings, imprisonment, and the incessant harassment, some of which his wife tells him about when they speak on the phone late that night. How does King wade through this trauma? Does Kame ease the journey, and if so, how? What we see in Katori Hall's Martin King is a man whose faith remains unshaken, his resolve to do God's will as strong as ever, even when he doesn't know where that path is headed. In the capable direction of 
the seasoned veteran Anthony J. Haney, himself a Southern transplant to Los Angeles, the two actors, Roberts and Misik, or Misik, work their magic on stage. How does a young maid make this final evening of his life work all worth all the years of strife bearable? What could the two possibly have to talk, let alone laugh about, as the thunder claps and the rain turns into snow? Guests are in for a wonderful ride as Hall's words ripple from the lips and tongues of such a wonderful cast. One just wants to wrap Kamei up and take her home, her honesty and youth such a mirror today, the place where dissatisfaction and impatience often collide when elders and youth meet one another across the aisle. Their goals are often the same, the path, at least the one tried by King, often philosophically at odds. In the Lorraine Motel that night, though, King listens and even agrees at some point with Kame, a Malcolm X radical in an apron. When asked how she came to her current position, Kame tells King she is good at cleaning up other people's messes, even if she isn't as good cleaning up her own. The space that evening is sacred. The cigarettes are frankincense, the balcony just a quicker stairway to heaven. Camay and King, two lingering souls looking for a way out of darkness. Halls, the mountaintop, challenges notions of spirituality in all its persona. There are miracles too. Mountain, the mountain and the valley meet in that room as Camay charts King's ascension. Katori Hall's work looks at the everyday divinity of ordinary folks and places Martin King right there with them. His greatness is not a greatness which is inaccessible or isolated, which means those people left here once he reaches the apex of a sojourn can use him as an example and keep on pushing. Camay's visit to room 306 seemed predestined. What is it about the congregation of women at a prophet's door as he opens it onto another? Think about Jesus and the three Marys. In African spiritual systems, an angel or a goon or orisha once walked the earth like us. So when one door closes, another opens. The seer, a linear cylindrical, we do not step off, we step over. Is this what happens to kings? His last night here is Camay the bridge over King's troubled waters. <laughs> so anyway, um, that's my take on the play, which again it was really phenomenal. The cast, there were just two of them, really, you know, were marvelous um, uh, in their depictions of Martin King and uh, and this. Uh, Camay, who um, the playwright, Katori Hall, was inspired by her mother's youthful story of what happened um, when King visited Memphis. So here is that interview, and um, yeah, we have enough time, I think, for you to hear most of it on the air, and, and then we'll probably follow that with a little music, and, uh, and maybe um, we'll play what's play a little bit of um, Steel Bill. Yeah, 
So I just want to tell you that um, I I was there at opening night and I saw all the folks, you know, your I think it was your husband bringing brought you this big bouquet of flowers and you know, you just were fantastic uh, in your Thank role you. as Kame. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think my very favorite scene is when she puts on Martin King's jacket and stands on the bed <laughs> and tells him how she would have approached. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, you know, the the conversation and gave her great speech. Right. It is a it's a great uh moment in the play, definitely. Mhm. Yeah, but your your character is just so nuanced. Oh my goodness, and so full of surprises that we do not even ex- you know, anticipate. Yeah. The the playwright um Katori Hall did a a great job, I think, of writing a character for black women to play that we don't often get to play that goes through a lot emotionally as well as um, physically that you don't often see with black female characters. And she said that she wrote it because there was a dearth of characters for her to study when she was in acting school. And so Mm -hmm. she... Mm -hmm wrote this play and this character specifically, I think, to address that issue. And, you know, we have some amazing playwrights but that within the African-American canon of theater, but you don't often see female characters written as fully realized and as um, nuanced, as you said. And so it's it's a great role to play because it definitely is a lot of fun. And it, it's it's written within the fabric of who black people are, so it's it's comfortable, and yet still it takes the character goes places that you don't really expect her to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and it's just so great, you know, that you are, you know, um, you know, sort of breathing life into Kame because, you know, you're you're not just an actress; you're also a playwright yourself. I am. Yeah, I've had the fortune of um, writing some one act plays that have gotten uh, produced by a theater company in Los Angeles um, with a former teacher of mine named Carrie Keene, and she started a theater company called the White Buffalo Theater Company and asked me to perform several of my pieces uh, with them at different points, and then I've had other people ask me to perform it during different uh, productions that they wanted to do. But it's I've written two one-acts um, that both deal with the different issues within the black community. One is a couple that uh, have a child together, but they're no longer in a relationship anymore, and just the problems that they have in communicating with one another. And then another uh, piece that I wrote deals with the African-American woman and her struggles with thinking about interracial dating. Mm-hmm. And um, both pieces are are dramedy. They're mainly comedic, but then they also deal with just, you know, real uh, issues that we do have within our community, um, but they they both break the the fourth wall and speak directly to the audience. And these characters mirror what each other are thinking in both pieces, but don't necessarily say out loud. So the audience is like a third character in the pieces, and they get to um, really have an insight almost as, as if they're a fly on the wall. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Right, sounds like you know, um, you know, as a writer, um, 
you know, Kame is, is, you know, the type of character that <laughs> you're very familiar with. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I can't I can't really say that. I think Kame is um is very different from anyone I've mm. necessarily met um and and that was one of the challenges with this play. You know, we all know people who are sassy and we all know people who are outspoken and you know have a lot of life force within them. Mm-hmm. But um you know the the issues that she went through during the 60s and during the time that she grew up during the time that this play is set mm-hmm. are very different from anything I, as a young woman growing up in Detroit, a predominantly black city in the 80s and 90s, ever had to deal with. And even my parents mm-hmm. and my family, when I was researching this character, my dad grew up in D.C., my mom grew up in Detroit, but neither one of them really went through some of the things that people who grew up in the deep south had to go through. Mm -hmm. Um, They had the opportunity to avoid certain places, and, you know, they lived in neighborhoods where they knew where to go and where not to go, whereas, you know, I think people like Camay, who grew up in the deep south in Memphis, it was not just, oh, you stick to your own. You could be subject to racism and the violence anywhere in mm-hmm. the city of Memphis during that time. So Kame is, it was not a character that I readily identify with, which made the research um, that much richer because mm-hmm. it was like starting from a completely blank slate. Uh-huh. Is, is that fun? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think for uh, Adrian Roberts, who plays Martin Luther King, his journey was a little bit different mm-hmm. because – we have so much information on Martin Luther King. And so as an actor, you know, there's a certain part of him who has to honor who this man was, but then he also gets to infuse his own artistic uh, ideas into the into the play. Whereas for me, it was literally starting with a blank slate. And the only thing that you have is the writing. And so that informs you of a lot, but you have the freedom and the creativity to pretty much do and bring whatever you want to it. And my director, Anthony Haney, was so awesome in that way that he just let me play. It would literally, I literally felt like a kid Mm -hmm. playing every single day that we had rehearsal. And, you know, there are some very serious things that we deal with. But as an actor, just the ability to say, I'm going to do whatever comes out. And that's a safe space to have and to do. It was definitely um, so much fun. So, mm-hmm. so much fun. Yeah. Right. Yeah, when I was reading uh, some of the background on, on casting, and, and I and I saw Adrian Roberts uh, in Hamlet at California Shakespeare Theater oh, when wow, he played yeah. Claudius and the Ghost. And it's like, oh, that was him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, and I, I saw him in Ruined as well. <laughs> he was great in that. He's an amazing actor. Um, yeah, yeah. And um, so I was reading that people didn't necessarily want to play Martin Luther King Jr. because they felt, ooh, um, you know, I don't want to, you know, be the one remembered <laughs> as, as you know, the person who portrayed this man. And because... You know, the whole situation, I mean, he's, you know, we, we know historically that he wasn't feeling really well the day before um, 
you know, the uh, sanitation workers strike, and uh, he had thought about not speaking um, at at the church, mm-hmm. but but then he thought about the people who were expecting him, and of course, you know, he didn't want to disappoint them, so he went and and gave that you know really wonderful. Um, speech, you know, mm-hmm. where he talks about going to the mountaintop. Mm-hmm. And so he comes back and he's relaxing and uh at the at the Lorraine uh, motel, you know, and and this this, you know, young woman comes with his coffee and this is her first day on the job or night on the job and who you know, who should she have but a celebrity client, you know, a celebrity right. guest. Right. And, <laughs> and who smokes the same kind of cigarette she smokes. Paul yeah. Malls and <laughs> And and just just the whole interaction between you know your character and and Adrian Roberts Martin Luther King Jr. character is just yeah we don't know what's gonna happen like are they gonna sort of where is this conversation gonna go are they gonna because people have there are a lot of stories that float around about Martin King and him having um uh being um you know, having relationships outside of his marriage. And so mm-hmm. we don't quite, I mean, I didn't know as I was sitting there wondering, hmm, like where is this going to go? Yeah, and I think that's the beauty of the play. I mm-hmm. think the playwright, uh, Katori Hall, definitely said she has no problem putting our leaders on display and, mm-hmm. and playing with our perspective and our ideas of who these people are. And I think a lot of people do find it difficult, and I'm sure a lot of actors were uh, concerned or afraid of of approaching this character because it does not portray Martin Luther King as this godly, excuse me, not godly, but uh, as a saint. Mm-hmm. He, She does not portray Martin Luther King as a perfect man, as a man without flaws or faults or doubts or fears. She portrays him as a man, as a, a three-dimensional character. And I think a lot of times um, we as people, but oftentimes us in the African-American community, we don't like our leaders to be, their faults to be put on display. And I, and I understand the side of it, mm-hmm. which is that, you know, we don't have a media that shows all sides of black people. We don't have uh, a country that really celebrates all the different facets of us, that we can be intelligent, but then also we can have people who are we, – that we can have the full uh, spectrum and array of personality traits and, and faults and flaws as white people have. We don't necessarily have that ability. So when we have – a leader or someone that we honor and we look up to, we very much hold that person dear, and we don't want anything to mar that image of them mm-hmm. because, you know, we don't want for children to say, oh, Martin Luther King was a great man, but he was he cheated on his wife or he was afraid of where the movement was taking him or he didn't he wasn't 100% certain. We don't like anything to be said about our leaders. And so it is difficult for us to to be honest sometimes and to recognize that people have faults no matter who they are. We're all human beings. And I think that that's a great um, choice of the playwright, and it's a great message that this play has, which is that, yes, Martin Luther King was an amazing man. He changed the country and this world. 
in the span of 13 years. At 25 years old, mm-hmm. he undertook a tremendous task that no one else wanted, and he took the civil rights movement to a place that no one else thought it could possibly go. And he made more of an impact in his life and after his death than any other American, I think, in the history of this country. But he also was just a man mm-hmm. with faults and flaws, and I think it's hard for us to look at that because sometimes if we can say, well, that person was perfect, then we don't have to put the task back on ourselves to pick up the torch or to pass on the baton or to look out for our fellow man or mm-hmm. to help out other people because we think, well, I'm not perfect. I can't possibly do that. But I think that was the message of the play, which is that we all are like Martin Luther King. We all have the ability to to help one another and to pick up the baton because nobody's perfect and mm-hmm. we don't have to be. Right, right. And, and I think, um, you know, one thinks about uh, grace and one thinks about divinity. Um, this play, uh, certainly with, you know, your character, Kame, and Adrian Roberts, Martin Luther King Jr., shows that flaws don't detract from, one, from one's greatness. Mm-hmm. No one said that a great person has to be perfect or flawless because that's not how we come anyway as human right. beings into this into this particular um, uh, environment, um, right. you know, to work through whatever we have to work through to get to the next level. Right. Um, yeah, what I what I really really like about uh, your Kame is just how um, how true she is to who she is. I mean, you know, she. Mm-hmm. She's all of herself. Yeah. Granted, she is in awe of this great man, you know, who wouldn't be. But she's also honest. And, yeah. and I like the way that Martin King listens to her. And because she's got, she she has a lot, she says a lot of things that are very wise considering she's a really young woman. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, oftentimes we look at people and we judge them. Mm-hmm. And we say, oh, this person is young or they're maybe uneducated or, you know, sometimes people from the north judge people from the south and think that because they have a southern accent they're not as intelligent. You know, we all have our own prejudices about people, but Kame definitely does dispel all of those misconceptions that people had about not just black people or southerners, but women. Mm -hmm. You know, during that time, during the civil rights movement, there weren't. A, a very many female leaders, especially within the Martin Luther King uh, camp, the SELC, mm-hmm. women, because it was a Southern Christian leadership conference, they did not, uh, they weren't at that time ready for women to be leaders. And it, and it was understandable because that was the tradition within the country. And so Camay and these these ideas that she has and these uh, thoughts that she shares with King are so revolutionary because it's almost like out of the mouths of babes, you know, out of the mouth of this seemingly simple woman. You know, she's a maid in a hotel. She says all of these things that are revolutionary mm-hmm. at the time. And, and he does listen to her. And I think that uh, Dr. King at that time, you know, was really going to start looking at the women's movement as well. He he recognized that women deserved as 
equal rights as much as men did. And I think that had he lived longer, that would have probably been one of the next issues that he would have addressed in addition to the civil rights movement. But unfortunately, we'll never know. But as a result of him and his life, it definitely did open up the doors. The civil rights movement did open up the women's liberation movement and and just seeing women organize and fight in our country for equal treatment and equal pay and equal rights. And I think it had a lot to do with the civil rights movement and the work of Dr. King. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, I I saw uh, Mountaintop when it was in its really um, embryonic stage, uh, when it was uh, a part of the um, Barrier Playwrights Festival and um, over at the Magic Theater in Fort Mason Center. (laughs) And C. Kelly Wright uh, had your your character, uh, Kame, and <laughs> to see, it's just so wonderful just to see over, I don't know, God, it feels like over five years, six years, mm-hmm. seven years, I don't know, it's been a long time, to, I remember, you know, the germ of, of the, the idea, however, it's just, oh my goodness, as the full-blown production, is just so phenomenal, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, um, uh, maybe your, some of your favorite scenes, particularly when uh, Kame is dispelling these these myths, and Martin King has like, it's like okay, well, mm, you know, like sort of like rethink right. what he was thinking. Um, and then also um, on the same note, I just love the whole notion of the black woman as God. I just think that's like, oh my God, that's so <laughs> wonderful. Like ah, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> To to answer your first question, Mm -hmm. some of my favorite, um, I guess if you would say scenes, even though the the play is one act. Right. uh, (laughs) Some of of my favorite scenes. Yeah, what's the the technical term for it? I I I don't know what to call it. (laughs) I I would just say moments. Oh, moments. I don't don't even know if there's a technical term for it. But, uh, (laughs) um, gosh, it's so difficult. I think... There is a moment where um, Kame and Dr. King are going head-to-head. There are two moments, and one is, you know, when she's talking to him about Malcolm X. Because, mm, yeah. you know, Martin, in the way that Martin Luther King is portrayed in, in this particular play, he has certain judgments of of a lot of things, but also of Malcolm X. And, you know, he is... He reveals that he believes that he was a violent man and that, you know, his violence was his own undoing. And, um, you know, Kame just calls to question Dr. King's own faults and and challenges him to think about the fact that we are all flawed. And she says, we all have faults, and she's sure that he has his own. And that's, you know, a, a really fun moment in the play because it's the play itself is just one big push and pull, a, a power struggle bet- between the two of them. And, you know, a lot of people, when they see the play, they, they don't know what to expect. They see this woman come in, they wonder, are they going to sleep together? Is this going to be, you know, a whole play about Martin Luther King trying to get into this maid's pants? And they don't know what it's going to be about. And there is a there is a certain level of unevenness between the two of them. And he definitely, you know, has a very, has a presence that is um, 
unnerving to her because she is just a regular woman who is meeting the most famous man in America, not just black man, but man. Mm -hmm. But then as the play progresses, you see that, that this is really just a battle of wits between these two people that you would never think would be in a room together and speaking and let alone arguing the state of America and the civil rights movement together. And yet you are able to see some of the things that Dr. King had to contend with. You know, he did have people within his own movement that didn't 100% agree with his tactics. They, everybody didn't want to be nonviolent, but he very much stood by that as the only way that the movement would work. And as the civil rights movement progressed over the time, people did begin to be frustrated with that. You know, they felt like this peaceful, nonviolent stance was not going to be what would change the minds of their oppressors. And so through Camay and King's struggle back and forth, you get to see what common people who weren't a part of King's movement really felt about the state of affairs in America. And, and it's a great – so I think that that scene is, is probably one of my favorite scenes mm -hmm. um, in, in terms of addressing that God is a black woman, not just a woman, but a black woman. I yes. mean, <laughs> it, it – oh, I mean, as a black woman myself mm -hmm. and – as a Christian, you know, I've been taught that that God is a man, or but God is a spirit. God isn't a man or a woman. God is spirit, and that we were created in God's image. And so I think that um, religion puts a very tight definition on what that is. Um, you know, I think now that the, the series The Bible has come out, a lot of people have been arguing, well, why is Jesus Christ still fair skin with brown hair why doesn't he look like a black man or people are upset that all of the the people it, that are portrayed in this series don't look closer to what we know that people at that time living in that area looked like and then there was the whole controversy that people were saying that the devil was portrayed to look like Barack Obama and all these things I think it is indicative of the fact that we as a as a world community still are very tied to feeling like God and Jesus Christ and the people in the Bible or our spiritual um, leaders of that time look a certain way. And I think that the play and the idea that God is a woman or a black woman it just plays with our understanding of God. I don't I really don't think it matters though whether God is a woman or a black woman or a man or a black man. I think God is spirit and that so often when we put these tight grips on what God is, what God expects, what God needs from us, how perfect we need to be, how we make it further and further away for us to measure up. Mm -hmm. Whereas God loves us, regardless of what we look like, who who we are, what we do, if we curse, if we don't, mm -hmm. as long as we love God and are faithful, that's all God asks for. He doesn't ask for perfection. And I think that, you know, the 
the play playing with that idea is is nice and it's fun, but it doesn't change my love of God any more than I think it should change anyone else's. I think the fact is just that God is spirit and God loves us, <laughs> and that's all that matters. Yeah. Well, currently there's um there's an uh, exhibit up in San Francisco at the African American Art and Culture Complex in the Sergeant Johnson Gallery, mm-hmm. and uh, it is um um. Black woman is God, mm. and so I saw that exhibit the 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 afternoon before I came to the play. Oh wow! <laughs> I'm like, oh my goodness! Yeah, I'm so sure it was, that yeah. had a lot of meaning for you. Yeah, mm, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, it must be in the air or something. And you know, since you're um, you know, you're from Detroit, then you know about the Nation of Islam's legacy, um, because uh, Temple One. Uh, where Ilana Bilaj Muhammad established it um, was in Detroit, Michigan, and and I grew up in the Nation of Islam, mm-hmm. and so um, the black man is God, and the black woman was the queen of the universe, and so mm-hmm. and and I agree with you, um, you know these are you know sort of putting human uh, aspects onto you know Creator, which mm-hmm. has which is bigger than us, right? But just you think about sort of what that does to our sense of ourselves if we think of mm-hmm. ourselves as you know as as great as that mm-hmm. so then we don't do things that are not great mm-hmm. and um and so you know using that as a metaphor i just think it's um you know with Camay and Martin King and just sort of playing with those notions as um Katori Hall does with the writing and the characters and then when you know the wonderful um, images that are shown in the end that just oh, yeah. show us just how great we really are right. as a nation, as a, yeah. a nation of change makers. You know, mm-hmm. the regular folks are doing mm-hmm. it too. Um, yeah. yeah. I think without Martin Luther King, there could have been no Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. And some of the the if we really look at what happened after his death in this country and how much, not just this country, but the world changed, the abolishment of apartheid, being able to see Nelson Mandela as uh, the leader of a country that in, that incarcerated him for more than half of his life. I mean, mm-hmm. just those, those changes that we've seen um, in our nation as a result of this one man is is amazing but then we can also look at the way that the world is today i mean even just in the bay area the highest level of uh of homelessness some of the the highest numbers of people who are homeless and hungry in the country but then also a county that is marin county is one of the wealthiest counties in america mm-hmm. to have silicon valley and so much wealth concentrated in one Area and then to see underneath these huge, monstrous buildings, people sleeping outside on the ground, people still hungry, people yeah. still without, and that is not uh, something that is odd to us as a country. You know, we see homeless people and we see people that are uh, hungry, and, and it doesn't it does not shock us. And yet Martin Luther King was dealing with the same thing 40, 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. 
that there were people starving to death in Mississippi, in one of the wealthiest nations in America. And so, yes, we've had immense progress and change, but we still have a long way to go, not just with our racial differences, but also with our the, the care that we have for our fellow man. I think, you know, it, we have a long way to go, and so the images that are that are brought up at the end of the play are they inspire hope, mm-hmm. but they also you know the playwright says the baton passes on. There's yes. still more work to be done, and mm-hmm. we still have somebody has to pick up the torch. Right? Yeah. Pieces like this have to be put on, mm-hmm. and people have to walk away from them with a sense of I need to help make a change in my community. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can't go and change the nation like Martin Luther King did, but I could change my community. I can go and donate clothes or my time or money to kids who don't have parents in the house or veterans or women who are without um, equal pay and equal rights. As a country and as a as a world, we still have to be concerned and look out for our fellow man, and I think that's one of the things that Dr. King really tried to stress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly I certainly agree, and and I'm sure you just had a matinee performance today, uh, and I'm sure um, uh, you maybe can share with us, you know, how the young people that uh, see the play, um, do they get a chance to talk to you afterwards um, about their impressions? We do. We do have talkbacks mm-hmm. um, after almost all of our um, shows, our student matinees. We didn't have one today, but... Mm-hmm. We have had them at every other performance, and then I've also had the pleasure of going to speak to um, high schools. I'm speaking to another high school tomorrow, and Adrian has had the opportunity to go and speak to to high school students as well. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting, especially within the Palo Alto community, um, which is still very wealthy, to to look and see what uh, kids are really concerned with nowadays. And... Their their impression of the play, you know, we had one young lady, a young African-American girl stand up, and she said that this play has changed her entire perspective on America and history, and she was just very thankful hmm. for what we, what we did and what we showed her. But this is one black girl who looked like one of maybe three in a school or in an in a auditorium of over 100. Mm-hmm. And so... I I question, you know, what it is that our kids are learning nowadays. I mean, the one of the schools that I spoke to, one of the girls said, you know, I really don't know that much about Martin Luther King. And I think that that is unfortunately the norm. I don't think that a lot of our our children are being taught history the same way that they were before. And so if their parents aren't giving it to them, they don't really have uh, – much to go off of. So when they see this play, it's a lot of information for them to take in. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the references maybe don't land the same way because they weren't taught the history of it, but they do recognize just the greatness of King as a man, and they enjoy being able to see him kind of playing around, being mm-hmm. a regular human being. And, right. and they also recognize that in their current time, there are issues that they can stand up and speak to. There are a lot of kids that I spoke to that are very concerned with gay and lesbian rights within this country, mm-hmm. as well as 
the uh, the abuse of women, you know, crimes against women that go unprosecuted or unsolved. Um, and and that was something that was very, very important to these students that I spoke to, as well as how we're treating our environment. And and it's interesting, you know, that that, that is what kids are are most passionate about nowadays. Um, but I, I, I think it was perhaps just the students that I spoke to, because I'm sure if this production was put on for kids in Oakland, their perspective, the things that they're concerned about might be a little bit different, yeah. might be a lot bit different. Um, yeah. But also, um, you know, in, in the same area where you are in Palo Alto, there's, you know, Little Nairobi or East Palo Alto where um, it was actually um, uh, that particular part of Palo Alto um, was trying to get its own you know, sort of um, become its own city, but that didn't happen. Did, um, so I guess you didn't get a chance to go talk to any of those children? No, oh. nor have I even heard of that area. This is my first time in hmm. Northern oh. California, and so... Oh, really? Oh, well, I hope you yeah, come back. <laughs> absolutely. I, absolutely. I love it here, but it the, the where the theater is situated it mm-hmm. definitely gives you a, a different energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and our different response to the play that I think maybe if put in another area wouldn't there wouldn't be the same response. I mean, our assistant director, uh, a young man named Brandon, expressed that he had seen the production done in Philly, oh, and wow. the responses that people had to mm-hmm. certain things were completely different. Mm-hmm. And so when we were rehearsing, we were trying to prepare ourselves for what would happen if people you know, were upset hearing King curse or were gasping if they heard him smoke. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. All of these things that culturally people might react to differently. I, you know, and I've only done this production here, so every audience is different every night. Um, the makeup of every audience is different, but based on the uh, the background, the racial background, the economic background, every performance is different. Uh, the age of the audience makes it a significant mm-hmm. impact on how people react to it um, because there are some people who grew up during this. And, and one woman cried during a talk back because she remembered when Martin Luther King was killed. Mm-hmm. And that was earth-shattering to her because she felt like, what are we as a country going to do if this is what we do to a man like this? Mm-hmm. And. This was a woman in her in her 60s, maybe, an older white woman, and it's still significant to her. Whereas for younger children, uh, it, it doesn't have the same impact. And so I, I have not been exposed to those communities, but I would have loved to see what, um, say, a school from, from that area, mm-hmm. how they reacted to this same piece, because... It's it's all it's all energy for us as actors mm-hmm. to be able to feel what people feel and right. you know kids respond to different things than the adults do so mm-hmm. yeah well I'm trying to get a party together of um, some women who are formerly incarcerated for and most of them the average is like over 20 years and mm-hmm. I'm a uh, member of the board for California Coalition for Women Prisoners and uh, and we've um, gone on you know some. Um, uh, it's, like we've gone out to, to um, events like this, and, um, mm-hmm. and 
I think they would really, really enjoy uh, seeing you and Adrian um, sort of bring breathing life into these wonderful characters. This is a great, great story. I mean, it's just, just a phenomenal story. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to your coming back to visit us. And, Thank you. Know, you. And maybe with one of your plays or in another production. Yes, I really look super. forward to that opportunity, too. <laughs> yeah, and, and lastly, because um, I know we've gone over, um, I just wanted to mention that um, I'm reading, I just finished reading a book called The Rebellious, uh, the Rebellious Life of Mrs. Uh, Rosa Parks, and it's by uh, Jean Theo Harris, uh, Dr. Jean Theo Harris. And, uh, and Rosa Parks, um, you know, she moved to to your fair city. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's where she, you know, lived until she made a transition um, because they mm-hmm. to no longer live in Birmingham because it was just so hostile, you know, once she, um, you know, started, you know, the... Um, you know, boycott. the bus boycott. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. People don't think about how how her family suffered and, mm-hmm. you know, not being able to find work. And But she just kept on, you know, speaking and doing her engagements. And then the, the suffering that they had, you know, like with the ulcers and, you know, the the stress and how that affected her heart and all of that. And then also Malcolm X gave his uh, last speech there before he was killed. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many things happen. Like, you know, you just like in sort of like this great place where this energy is just so, so heavy duty. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, the Republic I, of New Africa was, was founded there. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh my goodness. I definitely recognize that coming from Detroit, I've had a different uh, history mm-hmm. than a lot of people that I know. I mean, <laughs> and, a, and a different upbringing. Mm-hmm. I had the fortune of, I, I, I can't even go, I could go on and on, but I know one thing specifically, I went to a school called Bates Academy, which was, it was called the School for the Gifted and Talented, and it was predominantly African American. Mm. And so growing up as a kid, I did not have a, 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 a shackle on my mind of how smart I could be or that black children couldn't achieve excellence educationally or in sports or in anything because I went to a school with almost all black kids that were all exceptionally intelligent. And then every year for Black History Month, for the entire month, we would study African-American history, African history as well as African-American history, Mm -hmm. the entire school from kindergarten through eighth grade. We would all be given a binder where we would have to study every fact, not just, oh, did Garrett Morgan invent the stoplight and Carver did the peanut. It, it, It was every invention, every achievement, every leader, everything about black culture. And that created such a basis and a background for me that I recognize that my peers don't necessarily have if they grew up somewhere else, as well as children who grew up today don't have that. So growing up in Detroit, seeing a city with black mayors, black councilmen and leaders, it it completely molded who I am as a person and what I think is possible to achieve because I grew up in such a strong city and mm-hmm. unfortunately our city isn't doing the best right now but um it having all of that history there does affect the the children we are the pro- 
pro- we are the product of our soil. And so Detroit definitely has great soil. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. And and you're a classically trained violinist, and uh, you went to Howard University, and you have a B.A. in English and a theater minor. And then after you graduated, you went over to England to study yeah. at Oxford, um, study yeah. theater there. Mm-hmm. And, and then you've also been... Um, in film, and um, and you were in a film that got Best Diaspora Film in the Kenyan Film Awards recently, like last year, right? Yeah, that film also was nominated for uh, Best Short Film in the African Movie Awards, which is their wow. version of the Oscars. Uh, Whoa! Great yeah. Awesome! Wow! Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow! That's amazing. You should put that in the in your note, like like. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's it's it, it was it's it was a great experience and you know all the the work that I've done has been just the product of God's grace and I'm thankful for every day that I get to to do what I love because a lot of people don't uh get to in their lives and in their careers and so yeah I'm mm-hmm. very thankful for where I've ended up <laughs> yeah yeah so after Sunday um are you going back to Southern California and what are you working on I am. I'm going back, and I'm working on being a wife and sitting myself still. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't seen my husband consistently in about a month and a half. Uh, he's sitting right here, but it, <laughs> it's been difficult because he's also an actor. He's oh. on the show uh, Southland on TNT. He mm-hmm. plays Detective Reuben Robinson, who's uh, Regina King's partner. And so he was working throughout most of the run of the show. So we've been apart. So I think we're just both going to sit still for a little while, but then only a short while because it's always back to work. And I don't know what where God is going to put me next, but I'm just going to show up and audition and see what happens. <laughs> so. Yeah. Do you have a website or anything? I do. It's oh. SimoneCook.com, uh, okay. my maiden name. Okay. So, S-I-M-O-N-E-C-O-O-K dot com. <laughs> okay, super. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to come back and see you on um, a closing performance on Sunday matinee, and hopefully I'll be able to bring some folks with me. Yes, and, uh, please do. Yeah, yes. Thank you so much. This oh, has been great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for this wonderful gift you brought us um, with your character, um, Tame. Um, you know, each... You know, time she is um, sort of called to life, you know, the the actress who portrays her, you know, brings, you know, her take on the spirit, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so anyway, I, I haven't seen her um, in any other light besides the one that you presented her in, and I just really like her. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> so, really thank you so much for all of your, your wonderful work um, in and making this play what it is and it's so fabulous. And thank you for the work that you're doing and for, for your radio show and everything, just getting this production out to people. We definitely appreciate that. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Well, you take good care and I'll see you, you on too. Sunday. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Wanda. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
once upon the planet Earth. Lived a man of noble birth, preaching love and freedom.
do people think they have to gain? Because the Is dead. 
Wow, that was so beautiful. Mm. Yes, it's like, okay, what should I play next? Should I play what's left? Um, I don't know. We don't have a lot of time. Should I play the Bill Withers film? Uh, what's what you know? In the time we have left, since I did promise, and um, yeah, maybe I should keep my my promise. <laughs> um, yeah, because um, Still Bill is really awesome. And again, like how do we follow Nina Simone? So I'm thinking. Um, I think I will play the uh the still bill because it's a great film and uh yeah yeah i just don't think i want to follow nina simone with anything else even though i could play sweet honey and i could play sonia sanchez but i played that yesterday you could just listen to <laughs> you could listen to my show yesterday and you could get all of that i even played um dr king's um mountaintop speech in its entirety so, um, yeah, so just, you know, go to the archive and look up the uh, yesterday's show, April 3rd, and uh, we'll just, we'll let Bill Withers take it out. So here is um, the uh, the film, Still Bill, um, you know, you can't see the pictures, but you can't see the, the excellent cinematography, but you can hear um, the uh the narrative aspect of it, like it was in those days when you had to imagine in your mind what things looked like. So, again, thank you so much for joining us on this special tribute to uh, Dr. King and Bill Withers, two ancestors, and and we also, you know, have called the names of Nina Simone and uh, we think about Lorraine Hansberry and her father, and we think about, um, we call Dr. King, we think of his queen, you know, Coretta Scott King, and we think about Maya Angelou, uh, who was a good friend of Dr. King as well, and we think about, um, I was thinking about McCoy Tyner, who is also an ancestor now, and um, yeah, and Bernice Reagan, uh, uh, who, you know, founded, uh, who started Sweet Honey and the Rock, which continues, you know, her legacy continues. And think about Bernice Reagan's, you know, work in the Civil Rights Movement. So all these these soldiers in that army, right? So, again, um, here is Still Bill. And definitely I encourage you to go online and watch the rest of the film. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone It's not warm when she's away Ain't no sunshine when she's gone She's always gone too long Anytime she goes away Wonder this time where she's gone
Dick Craig as a runner was his elusiveness. He could just make people miss, flatness. Red Grange was everything. He was bigger than... Can I take us right back to when you actually first started? How did your recording career come about? I saved up some of my own money and uh, recorded myself. I had never written any songs. I didn't really know how to play anything. And I had never sung before. Not really, you know, in the shower or someplace. But, but I just uh, decided it would be awfully nice to get in the music business. And then I just walked around and knocked on everybody's door. A lot of times I would go in and somebody would say to me, um, you're too old to be just... Uh, uh, beginning, you know, I was like uh, 32 years old at the time. Most of the major record companies called me up, but they had a different idea of how they didn't want me to do anything quiet. They had this rhythm and blues uh, uh, syndrome in their mind with the horns and the three chicks mm -hmm. and the gold of May suit, you know. And I wasn't really into that, so I thought um, I had a job, you know. So I thought, well, you know, if they if they wanted me to do it like I want to do it. I got this good job making these toilets. I don't need you, Cash. <laughs> making these toilets. What kind yeah. of toilets are you making? For aircraft. Ah. Uh -huh. Yeah, 747 aircraft. I installed uh, cameras in those toilets. Mm -hmm. Unbeknownst, we say that in slab park to anybody yeah. but me. <laughs> so if you've ever been to the bathroom on the 747, I know you very well. <laughs> <laughs> So, here's all the stuff that I don't know how to work. <laughs> I mean, I guess the stuff works. I know how to turn it on, you know. Like, I can make lights come on and stuff. Let's see. Here, I can turn that on. And, and uh, let's see. And this fan on here to cool it off. These things have been sitting here corroding for about... About ten years. Yeah, I say, remember, I don't think I got a speaker thing here. Fooling around, let's see. I was just playing with all these gadgets. I have to be careful that I don't just wallow in my own comfort. Probably now I'm trying to find some kind of motivation or, you know, I'm not lazy. I don't even understand. I'm trying to give myself a chance to get driven, where just the sheer activity of doing something just jacks you up, makes you excited. I lived a good portion of my life before I started to play music. I had been working at Weber Aircraft, and I got laid off. Then Ain't No Sunshine started appearing on the radio and stuff. And it's funny because I got two requests in the same day. I got a letter from my job saying that I was called back to work and I got a request to do the Johnny Carson show. Like that song. I was big for you, wasn't it? Yeah, that kind of uh, got me off the uh, ham and eggs thing and uh, kind of tightened me up a little bit. But we mentioned this before, that uh, you uh, were a craftsman and you made John toilets, right? Oh, yeah, it was a good job. I had a lot of fun doing it. <laughs> uh, well, where does the fun come in, Bill? Uh, I mean, I mean... Well, people in my own family were probably surprised. When I was on the radio, people from... I'd been in the Navy with, people I'd worked in the factory with, 
people that knew me were probably going, wait a minute, is that that same guy? If I would have gone to work the next day and told somebody where I was last night, I'd have got laughed out of the place. All of a sudden, I'm traveling on the road, and more people are interested in you than before. It was just like a whole other world. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bill Withers. that had never been there before, like handsome. Boy, you sure do get better looking when you get a hit record, I'll tell you that. sudden somebody says, go to work. Let's give a big round of applause for the one and only Mr. Bill Wilson. Give a big round of applause. prognosis of your career, uh, Bill, you know, you'll become a big star. You're becoming a superstar. And uh, do you think you can remain just as you are? First, I have Bill? to become somebody that understands what prognosis means, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you interpret how things going to go for you? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. I'm kind of just letting them go, you know, letting them uh, go. And uh, whatever's given to me, if I can do it, you know, I'll just have at it. Two or three years into this, I was in a major mess. When I had a record company actually collapse out from under me. Well, the IRS came in and took tapes and sold them. Then when I went to this major, big, mega label, you know, you walk in, you play something, and somebody goes, well, where are the horns? you got to put some horns on it. How long is the intro? First hit record I had was Ain't No Sunshine. 
No intro, nothing. If nobody throws all their rules at you, you might make a song with no introduction. Instead of singing about romantic love all the time, you make a love song about your grandmother. Or you make a friendship song, Allah Lean On Me, searching through your feelings and, and your vulnerabilities and your strengths and your weaknesses. And you already loaded up enough with the burden of just trying to find those feelings. So then here comes a whole bunch of guys trying to tell you what to do with all their goofy suggestions and stuff. They have the R&B black guys, and then they got what I like to call black spurts. That's the white guys who are supposed to be experts, you know, who have some kind of tap into your black psyche. I had an A&R man once that his big suggestion to me was that I cover Elvis Presley's In the Ghetto. I was livid. And as I started to try to respond to that, that simple kind of emotional, vulnerable kind of thing kind of got splattered around there. I became very interested. Can I still stay in this business and be effective and make a living and not have to play this fame game? I wasn't any good at it. The fame game was kicking my ass. I see the crystal raindrops fall and the beauty of it all when the sun comes shining through. To make those rainbows in my mind when I think of you sometime and I want to spend some time with you. Just the two of us. I would like to see us move past to where you need the validation of the mainstream so much until we got away from liking ourselves. The challenge, though, is still, once you get in that mainstream, to not become mainstreamed. That is to say, to remain your authentic self, to still make the community that produced you proud of you, to not, in the cultural vernacular, to become a sellout. Sellout. I'm not crazy about that word because we're all entrepreneurs. To me, I don't care whether you own a furniture store or whatever. The best sign you can put up is sold out. Sold out. So let's call. Can we make that? Can we make that subservient? Yeah, that's that's, that's, that's no, a different twist on the no, formulation. No, 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 I, I, I think what Talos is saying here, though, is a profound point. One, one, it's a Shakespearean point. To thine own self be true, and as night follows day, thou can be false to no one. You have been true to yourself. You don't sound like Paul Simon on the guitar. You build with us because you come out of your roots. When you sing Grandma's Hands and start talking about Maddie and talking about Grandma taking care of local unwed mothers in Virginia, West Virginia, mm -hmm. that's real. That's being yourself. At the same time, though, in being yourself, 
you're able to cross over into a white mainstream and they had to accept you on your own terms. You see, looking at this thing is not new. Oh boy, these pages are really... Well, I guess this was brothers and sisters I had that never lived. I was the last of 13 kids that my mother had. I guess I wasn't born yet, so I'm not in here anywhere. Gracchus Monroe Galloway was my mother's father, and he was born a slave. He was probably nine years old when they freed the slaves. He worked in the coal mines, but he would never work for the coal company. He Paul Cole, here's Grandma. Now, I took this picture when I was a kid, so you can see what year it was by the car. Most of us, at some point in our lives, have somebody that means more to us than anybody else has ever meant before or will ever mean again. Sometimes it's a long-legged lady if you're a man, or some tall, very smooth man if you're a woman. But in my case, I learned how to really love somebody from just a nice old lady. My favorite thing that I've written has to be about this favorite old lady of mine. right on that porch and clap her hands. Remember, they called it getting happy. You're right, 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 There's a saying, the sleepy smiling south with blood on its mouth. Right, right. Well, we weren't in that south. This was south in a way. Like, when we grew up, you didn't have to sit on the back of the bus. Right, right. But we had separate schools now. Right. You could, you had to go to the back door if you wanted a milkshake or something from right. one of the restaurants uptown. But the kids left her our own devices. We played now. We sat here. That was the divide line. Right. 
We were the only two black families on this side on of the railroad side of the track. Railroad. Well, we just integrated the whole thing by ourselves. So I think all of the black families, basically, like it or not, most of us had white people in our families. You know, after you did a day's work in the coal mines, everybody was black anyway. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's true. That's true. That, yeah, that's true. Wasn't nothing but that. black people here. <laughs> I haven't been to Slab Fork since about 1959. Nobody's back there. No, there's nothing there much except graves, you know, and old coal mines. And I, I'm really not too hung up on going and laying flowers on dead people. Let me be very candid about it. This was a white graveyard. This is a black graveyard. Hey, Bill Withers. Yeah. What was your brother's name? His name was Earl Martin. Here he is right here. Okay. Earl W. Martin. Yep, that's my brother. Well, they give him a nice stone. Where'd you see those numbers? Oh, 1942. Do you, do you vaguely remember... Any location about where your father would be? No, and I don't know whether he would be very close to Earl or not. Yeah, well, Papa, wherever you at. Hello, bud. I'll catch you some later. My father taught me, you know, he, he put the work thing in my head. My mother put the, the moral thing in my head. My father used to have a little barbershop here. And he wasn't a good barber, but he told great stories. Just can't keep from crying. houses were owned by the coal company and they all looked the same. A absolutely. They probably done stuff to them now. The company owned everything. Which was one family. The coal company got your money, they paid you then, they got it. You had to shop, you shopped in their store. Now this was the old store. Yeah, company store. You could buy everything at this store. Now this is an exceptional coal camp from the standpoint that it still have enough life to have some people living here. They had a lot of churches. They had a Baptist church. Then they had a Methodist church somewhere. Mm -hmm. And then they had your holy and sanctified church. I liked my grandmother's church. It was spontaneous singing. There was no program singing. Somebody got up and started to sing a song. Everybody sang. It was my favorite kind of singing. Remember me. Oh, Lord. Well, we have walked these railroad ties, huh, C.B.? Yeah. Now, if you want to test how skillful you are, walk this. Remember that that, that used to be the thing, who could walk the rail? If you can walk the rail... The furthest? Yeah, see, yeah. see that's how to test how you. skillful you are. Look at how. Yeah, see, you... I still can walk. Yeah. Yo, you're doing tricks and stuff. Yeah, see, that's how skillful. Now, if you break out a handstand, I'm leaving tonight. <laughs> I'm telling you, this was like life, busy, busy, summertime come. 
we'd go round, dam up the creek, right. get buck naked. And go swimming. Go swimming. Yeah. And so the girls would time you out, say, well, it's about swimming time. Then the girls would come down there yeah. and stand on the side so you, you couldn't get out of the water until they left. <laughs> You know, so it was just a whole culture yeah. of stuff like that. It's a, it's an amazing thing when you look back and you realize that the world changed completely around you. You are gone, seeing you're gone. seeing what used to be. So we are truly the last of a yeah we yeah we getting there of a breed huh yeah we we getting there. Hey Bill. Yeah. Hit it one time for me. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. You already hit it. I can't hit it like you no more. <laughs> now, let, me, let me ask you. Do you do any, do you go on any tours at all now? The first thing you said to me was, you look like an old man. <laughs> so now, how can you tell me in one breath that I look like an old man? And then in the second breath, tell me, you ought, oh, you ought to be out on the road I, no, no, playing no, 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 rock no. and roll. No, I have never understood how you entertainers could be on the road and do every other night or one night stand. I don't understand it either. That's how come I ain't doing it. <laughs> okay. Okay. I've had people ask me that question a lot. You know, how could you just stop? Well, to me, it wasn't stopping anything. It was doing something else. And I mean, I like music, but I'm not going to place my whole worth on it. You know how unhappy you would be if you thought that the way you are is not okay? I started out my life like that. I don't want to end it up like that. Okay, we're on our way to get a birthday cake. I'm getting just a 7 0. I don't want him to have to struggle to blow out 70 candles. We are putting this here. This doesn't seem very formal, but. It does. Yes. You know. Go. Well, give it. Yeah. But we still have to celebrate. We would love for you to make a gigantic wish and blow out your candles. You don't have to divulge a wish, but we'd love for you to make a wish. I'm a senior citizen. That's okay with me. I'm okay with my gray hair and my, you know, my narrowing shoulders. To the country in. The most important thing is to be okay, you know. I just want to feel good. I know what it feels like not to feel all right. You know, guilt and regret, aches and pains. I'd really like to learn to accept everything before I die. Hey, Bill. Hey, man, how you doing? Look out. Ah, oh, Jimmy Bobby. Hello, man. How you doing? Boy, you still look like a teenager. <laughs> how you doing? Good to you, man. You too, man. Uh, you too. It must be your son. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I looked at my yeah. <laughs> How you doing, man? How's everything? How's everything going? I'm his daughter, but last time I remember you, you held me on your lap. We, we went over to your mom's house. Yeah, how you doing, sugar? <laughs> well, you can still sit on there. You know, not, not too long, though. Not too long. When I wake up in the morning, love, the sunlight hits my eyes. I'm so glad to see you, girl. Yeah, 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 I'm so glad to see you,
I actually turned 70 today. Some people are just born cool. They've been cool all their lives, you know. Well, I hadn't been cool all my life. I was an asthmatic stutterer as a kid. One popular thing is, spit it out, spit it out. And then they have all these folky kind of cures, like hitting you in the face with a dish rag or something, you know what I mean. Really stupid stuff, you know. I grew up with, you can't do nothing. One teacher said to me once that I was handicapped. And I didn't like that word. So any dreams that I had, I kept them to myself. Once you're labeled sort of a less than person, it gave me this crisis of confidence. I just wanted to leave and then go and start over with some new people. The Navy, at that age, you know, 17, seemed like somewhere to go. If you don't look into your mind and find out what you're running from tomorrow might be just another day to run. These are my old Navy buddies. I've known these guys since I was 21. We all met in Guam. There was not much for us to do socially. So it was kind of frustrating because you got all these young guys, you know, but all this testosterone, and there's nowhere for them to go. You know what they told me about Guam? The guy says, oh, you're going to Guam. There's a woman behind every tree. There's only two trees. <laughs> <laughs> I was hard on a brother in Guam. Funny time. It, that there was a whole lot of life real fast, yeah, you know? Yeah. I was on the way up here. I was thinking that when I first seen you, didn't you bring a guitar to, uh, to Guam? No, no. I never owned a guitar until 1970 or something like that. Is that right? You know, I don't know an F sharp from 9th Street. <laughs> when you got there, you uh, you found that little old bar. You was you was singing Johnny Mathis more so than what you or whatever the piano player could play. Oh, was that right? A couple of drinks, man. Everybody, you know, you start singing. Shoot, yeah. But I still hadn't given it any thought as to making a living at it. When you appeared in my. always been just Bill Withers to me, and I'm sure that's where he feel too, and I, I don't think he would want it any different, you know. My real life was when I was just a working guy, just in the Navy, just a mechanic, you know what I mean? But the true measure of any group of people is how are the ones that are just people? You were here in my memory, I love I was an aircraft mechanic. I was in the Navy okay. nine years. Okay. I can do masonry and all these kind of things. Now, were you writing songs while you were doing that? I've written songs working at McDonnell Douglas on the line. Use me, you know, working on an airplane and, and, and things in the air. Grandma's hands, Weber, 
Weber <laughs> Aircraft in Burbank. Golly. You, 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 you understand what yeah. I'm saying? While working, you're working, working on writing. the thing and, and singing it over and over to yourself so you don't forget it before you get home. Oh, but <laughs> you, you know what's funny? People say, yeah, he wrote that song about that woman. I didn't know none of them damn women when I was writing them songs. Just in your mind. I couldn't get no women. I was making $3 an hour <laughs> working in the damn thing. Uno, dos, tres, cuatro. I was 23 years old. I was a graduate student at UCLA working on my MBA. And my sister and I decided... We wanted, to, well, actually, with me, I wanted to go see Jill Scott Heron. With the vacant table, she said, Oh, let's go sit there. I said, It says reserved. And lo and behold, it was Bill sitting there, which I didn't know she recognized him. And that's how I met him. You know, I wasn't starstruck at all. He was just a regular, normal person. He was interesting. He was interested in me. A lot of men can't express what they're feeling. And he can. He can, you know, he's sensitive, but tough. Put your foot on the rock and pat your foot, don't stop. Put your foot on the rock. Put your foot on the rock. I know you just can't stop. Put your foot on the rock. And now when I'm kissing my love, feel the blood pumping in my veins. I figured out who I was. I married an MBA. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> the one thing about Marcia is, Marcia's a, a, an optimist in, in the face of everything. We live a life that is comfortable and simple, and I think that uh, Bill never really wanted, you know, all these riches and material things. When the kids came along, he was home a lot. He didn't do a lot of touring. There were times when I'm sure he really missed being in the business making music, but I think that uh, it was more important for him to uh, have a life and a family. He had never had a family before. He had his mother, but his dad died when he was 13, and I think it was really important for him to be a father to the kids. Darkness has the brightest glow, and I just love 
grandfather played a lot of music at home. Music was never something that was pushed. It was just always there. We had two pianos at home on opposite sides of the house. It certainly was something that blended the family together. It was something we all shared. Okay. So you guys You're the navigators. You okay. You're getting the, the tour, so the dean... This was Todd's big day. He's, you know, accepted into this law school. It's exciting for him, and it's exciting for us. I really learned about this whole family thing from Marsha. I think the older you get, the more your concern shifts from you to other people. So, Todd, so do, do I have to... Do I have to start calling you mister in a, in a couple of years? Growing up listening to my dad's song, it was just like the most peaceful space I remember being able to have as a child. And he kind of speaks in little poems. You know, the sky is blue and I'm happy to see you. You know, just he just would pull it out of anywhere. Quit crying and start trying. A lot of times he says, write this down. He says, get a pencil, you know write this down and I'm sure my mother has hundreds of little pieces of paper just all over the house of just not even full songs but two two lines you know just a thought sometimes he'll call me just to say that I was thinking this and I want you to make a note of it and then some of those